It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Here in Key West, we were out before it was in. In this open and inclusive paradise, you can be yourself, make new friends, and savor our live and let live vibe. With LGBTQ friendly accommodations, our legendary nightlife, and year-round activities and events, it's always a good time to come as you are. Key West, close to perfect, far from normal. This is an official download from thecustardtv.com. You join us in November 1998. We have hopped aboard the TV time machine once more, except today we do have a stowaway amongst us. So Dawn Glenn is joining Matt and myself this week to discuss four shows from November 1998, 25 years ago last month. Thank you. I squatted in the time machine and refused to leave until you took me with you. Matt and I have already said what we were doing with our lives in 98, but we know not what a younger Dawn Glenn was doing in November of 98. I was 23, uh, and it was uh, a a halcyon period. (laughs) (laughs) Although I was still ill, I've been ill since I was uh, 15. Uh, I was living at home with my parents, along with my older brother was still living at home. Uh, I had a boyfriend of five years who worked in um, pubs. A young so... Dawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a different time. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> he worked for um, a chain pub called Brannigan's. So we spent a lot of time um, listening to which specialised in cheesy music. So uh, right up my alley. So uh, I spent a lot of time there. And in 1998, I was heavily, heavily, heavily involved in the X-Files online fandom. I don't want to spend too long on this because God knows we don't really care. But <laughs> how did you get online? Because my first foray into online, we were, moved, we were in the process of moving to America. That's the last time I mentioned that again on this plumbing podcast. But we were in this, this process and we had to go online to do all the documents. And I don't remember... I wasn't heavily involved in that, but I don't know how you got online in 98. I don't know if I knew it was even a thing. In the summer of 1996, I went to visit a friend who was at university and she took me to the computer lab and was like, this is the online world, go on it. And I started chatting to people and went, I found my thing, this is what I want. Funnily enough, in November of that year, my brother got his first PC and connected it up to the internet and he very graciously allowed me my own profile on his computer and that I could use it whenever he wasn't in, which was a lot because he had a life. So I went online in, in the, at the end of 1996 and immediately discovered uh, news groups and IRC, AOL, eventually became AOL chat. But I, I don't understand what your internet provider would be. Now you'd ring up BT and they'd say you can have internet in three weeks thanks to open reach. But then how did 
somebody get online? I've absolutely no idea. You signed up with an IP. I think ours was Blue Yonder at the time, and you just had an, a phone number that you dialed up with your mm. your. Yeah, your... The, I remember the old yeah. dial up. Yeah. Beep, beep, you know, that went on for about yeah. three minutes. Um and and yeah we so we got a second phone line put in so yeah. that we could be online without um disrupting the the, the house okay. phone. Yeah, it was it was it changed my life. That's fascinating because I I genuinely didn't know there were that many people online. Um, right, Matt, you want to start <laughs> off the podcast as we normally do this one, taking us back in TV news of November nineteen ninety eight. So starting on the first of November, film four launches we've got the simulcast of the usual suspects on channel four mo like this last month uh the national grid reporting a surge of electricity at 8 p.m on this is the 18th of november as the coronation street episode featuring the death of the character des barnes reaches its conclusion des barnes there's a name from the past well from about 25 years ago (laughs) (laughs) i've no memory of him i do he was the one, didn't he set fire to his boat? To his what? To his boat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. The 20th of November, at London's Wandsworth County Court, the makers of 15 to 1 are awarded a county court judgment against Trevor Montague, a former series champion who broke the show's rules that losing contestants cannot appear on the show again. Having lost in 1989, he reapplied under a different name in 1992, and went on to become series champion, but was subsequently identified by a contestant who watched a repeat of the show on Challenge TV. That's why they call it Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I will see you, I will challenge you to not being correct. I don't know where you find these things, but they are my favourite bit of this podcast. If if, if that is that we've peaked, and you may as well switch off now. We're just reviewing four of the shows now. You won't get facts like that thrown at you. What we gonna do right here is go back. Way back, way back, back into time. Way back, way back. Way but this week we are doing series one, episode one of a lot of shows. Two of which have, well, four. No, I said a lot. Four. Uh, two of which have stayed in the public consciousness, and two, I would argue, have sort of faded despite having massive stars at the helm of one of them. Uh, We're talking, of course, about Cold Feet on ITV, Dinner Ladies on the BBC. So I was going to say Brass Eye again. What's it called? Big Train. Big Train on the BBC and uh, The Young Person's Guide to Being a Pop Star on Channel 4. And we are starting with ITV's Cold Feet, which is a show I didn't see in 98. I think I saw in 2000 when you could get the DVD. And it's a show I had a lot of fondness for. It is the sort of show that we don't make in this country anymore. And we do particularly well. But this is a relationship drama. And it centres around three couples. Adam and Rachel, Pete and Jenny, and Karen and David. And in this first episode of the series, following on from the pilot, where Adam met Rachel and fell in love and sort of got to know her friends... This picks up with Adam serenading Rachel at her office to commemorate, I think, six months, the first time they had sex. She's deeply embarrassed, and their storyline revolves around 
them wanting to move in together and Rachel's frustration at Adam never wanting to be at her flat. He wants to always be at his own. Karen and David's story is that they have a young baby boy who is struggling at nursery. He isn't potty trained. David, who's this hard-working business city type, isn't paying him a lot of attention. But when they go to a parent's evening and meet other parents, they realise he might be behind. And David takes it upon himself to teach his son what he can and fails miserably. And on the other end of the scale, Jenny and Pete, Jenny's expecting their baby at any moment and delivers it by the end of the episode. But Pete has driven her mad reading all the books and getting all the information down and is really stressing her out with how much he knows about pregnancy and birth. But when it comes to it, he misses the birth because uh, Adam has his uh, special mobile that is only for Jen's use after going to the pub together. This, of course, stars James Nesbitt, Helen Baxendale, John Thompson, Faye Ripley, Robert Bathurst and Hermione Norris as the central characters. It would go on for five series. It would end in 2003 with one of them dying in a car crash and then it would be resurrected. It's written by Mike Bullen, who went on to write similar shows like Life Begins with Caroline Quentin and the soon-forgotten All About George with uh, Rick Mail as the lead. And these were always sort of relationship, family, down-to-earth dramas. I loved Cold Feet. I'm going to use that phrase again that I only use on the Time Machine podcast. I do feel that it comes out of the box knowing exactly what it is. It's fully formed. It's relatable. It's warm. It's funny. It's dramatic. You just completely fall for these people. And I was looking at their IMDb and James Nesbitt had done only bit parts in several things prior to this. But this catapulted him into the star that he is today, and um, it's a remarkably well-observed performance. There's this cheeky chappy who you can't help but feel sorry for and connect to immediately. All the central performances are fantastic. It's brilliantly written, just speaks of a time of life. This episode, if you've never seen Cold Feet, this is exactly what the show continues to be. And I I hadn't revisited it probably for 10 years or more, and I really enjoyed it. And I was talking to Dawn Pryor, and I was fascinated by her thoughts on Cold Feet because she is a shipper, but there's one character in this that you just couldn't get on board with. And I wondered if you could elaborate on it and whether your feelings changed having to watch this through critical eyes rather than just a viewer like you would have done in 98 and beyond. Yeah, it's it's really interesting going back to it. I remember I did watch it at the time and I remembered through it that I shipped Adam with Jenny. In my distant memory, I thought that must have just been, I really liked their chemistry and the, that was all there was to it. And obviously it was never going to happen because Adam was with Rachel and Rachel is the character I could not get on with. There are just some actors and actresses that just, don't work with me and sadly Helen Baxendale's one of them I just can't can't with her I just can't so when well, I she's watch... here tonight <laughs> yes watching it back I thought actually in that first episode it really is built into it this 
subplot, which I know they do touch on it, I think maybe in the second series, about Adam's relationship with Jenny, that they are best friends. And I didn't realise how much that was played with in that very first episode. As you say, that first episode comes out of the box, everything forms. And if I had watched that first episode now and never seen the, the rest of the show, I would be thinking, oh, this this is going to be a plot that he and Jenny are going to fall in love or be in love, realise they're in love, and it's going to cause ructions with all three couples and how does that go? That isn't the plot. But it, it was, you know, it's mentioned in the start when they do this bit to um, screen to, to camera where they're like talking about the relationships and even in that bit Jenny talks about Adam and she's like making fun of him but it's the only time they're not talking about their only par partner is, is Jenny's talking about Adam and then as the episode progresses when Jenny goes into labour Adam is with her and he is almost the only one that um, Pete does turn up just at the very last minute and then at the end there's this scene where um, Pete is, I don't know if he's drunk or just half asleep and um, Adam is saying, oh that was amazing watching Jenny give birth, it was incredible, what an amazing woman she is, I love her, Pete doesn't recognise what he's saying, he doesn't take it in and I'm like, wow that really is laying this foundation, so I thought I wasn't as, as bizarre as I thought it was, it was all there on screen watching it now I found them more grating because I am an, an adult. <laughs> I mean, I was an adult at 23, but you know what I mean? Emotionally, I wasn't really an adult. The men, especially, more grating, except John Thompson. John Thompson, he is the most sympathetic character in it. Oh, David was awful. <laughs> I know what a terrible human being he is. And Adam playing this trickery on Rachel that, because he didn't want to, to move in with her, uh, well, he d I don't know quite what his entire motivation was, but he created this whole idea that let's duplicate our wardrobes at each other's house so then we can stay either flat. And But then she plays him. And this yeah. idea that a happy couple are manipulating each other in that way, I thought, oh, that's... I, I, I think it's just the old adage that men don't like change. I think yeah. that's all it was. <laughs> yes, but... yes. Why would she not want to just move? I've got everything I need here. Why wouldn't she yes. just... She loves me. Why wouldn't she just move in with me? It's easier for her, which but is think, complete rubbish. But yeah. I I think as well, it's it shows the difference that, you know, 25 years make. If that was depicted now, it wouldn't be shown as a comedy kind of roll your eyes thing. That would be like, oh, what a toxic behaviour. Whereas in those days, as you say, he is charming as mm. this cheeky chappy and him doing it isn't seen as bad it's just no. as you say it's just like oh typical guy whereas if if they'd written it now i think it would have a completely different undercurrent i think james nesbitt does have this cheeky chappy yeah. warmth he, to him that you just he could get away with something that um a robert bathurst doing yes. the same thing could not get absolutely away definitely him and john thompson both have that same warmth that you just want to kind of chuck them on the shoulder and go ah whatever that every man quality and it is engaging i was struck by how the relationships were immediately formed like david's dismissiveness of ramona because 
she's not talking to him properly or um, him reading the financial records rather than the story because he's got to get stuff done. Or John Thompson in the in the birthing class, desperate to get all the questions right, but none of the women answer any questions. It made me wonder again watching it why we don't make... There must be an appetite for this sort of show because this was juggernaut at the time. And we yeah. haven't made anything close to it for years. No. And There's... I wonder why we don't. Yeah, it seems that they, they have to always have a specific central plot. And yeah. this didn't. This didn't. The plot was just them living life, you know? Yeah, and that's the kind of TV I loved because it, it's, to use a phrase I've overused, it shines a light onto an, a Britishness and an everydayness where someone will go, oh, you're David, you're Adam, you're Karen, you you know, mm-hmm. you can connect with them. And I, I did watch this first one. It had a lot of stuff in it. And I was, I was tempted to go on to the next one because the first one covered such a lot. I was thinking... Where does the second one go? Do they pick up on the Jenny and Adam stuff again? Or is that just later on in series two? I think it happens when they're together at New Year's. Yeah. I did watch the second episode, so I can oh, tell go you. on. Just give, <laughs> give me a brief synopsis. Uh, the second episode focused mostly on uh, David had um, some financial deal go wrong. He'd invested yeah. in something. And so Karen said she was going to take control and make an investment. Adam and Rachel found a flat. And um, her ex-husband turned up. Oh, who's um, he played by? Is he played by a yes, face? Yes, played by a face. I literally went, oh, it was Lenny James. Oh, that face. And he moves in with them. Of course. For, for several weeks. And um, I know what I'm she, doing after this. Because <laughs> she doesn't want to get divorced. And, and Jenny and Pete is just that they're exhausted and trying to cope with it. And you yeah. start sleeping. Just such low stakes, such yes. mundanity. There's nothing yes. really to report. No. But, and it it's, comes from an era where, and I don't think this happens so much now, Mike Bullen writes the majority of the episodes and he can write just as well with the Pete and Jenny stuff as he does with the Adam and Rachel stuff, as he does with the Karen and David stuff. And they're just completely different people, really. And they come together because they have mutual friendships with Rachel but mm-hmm. um I was struck by how much I enjoyed it and I hadn't revisited it because there's always that thing of something you liked mm-hmm. you go back and you see it with different eyes and you go whatever attracted me but no <laughs> just to answer your point there Luke I think the lack of shows like this today is to do with their sort of lack of appeal to international markets mm. harder to sell a concept that is, you know, just about life than if it has got a hook is based on a prior IP or something like that, something you can sell. It was on Bravo when I first got to America and it had a, it had um, a fan base. I know you like the ratings news as well, Luke. This only got about seven and a half million roughly per episode, which means a lot less people watch this yeah. than they did graft. I remember my... <laughs> Mike Bull and I was very lucky to interview and it was up against something. The pilot was up against a big football game which overran, so it, it barely went out at the time it was supposed to. And the first series was up against football, now I think of it, a lot of football-y stuff. I may have tuned out when he said the word football. One of the things that you haven't mentioned as well is the fact that this is set in Manchester rather than, you know, central London, which in itself is a bit of a 
a rarity, you know. I, I sort of see where um, Dawn's coming from a little bit in terms of the characters. I think at times they are thinly drawn a little bit, but you still believe in their relationships and their interplay. And I think, again, in 1998, people talking about these sort of topics on TV was, again, rare outside possibly the soaps and things like that. And I think the Central Six performers as well have a a great chemistry mm. and, you know, they've all gone on to have great success elsewhere. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you had this in your top 10 dramas of all time, and I know you've yeah. gone over it a little bit, but what differentiates this for you in terms of one of your favourites of all time? See, I don't know whether it would be. I've seen a lot more television in the 10 years I've been back. Uh, we did that in not that long ago, I know, but I don't know if it would be there now. But it was quintessentially British. They were really real to me. It didn't ever feel written. The final couple of episodes where Helen Baxendale is killed in that car crash were so tender and, and heartbreaking and expertly done. It was just like a warm hug. And I needed that occasionally. And I never bored of it. The ca- I loved how the characters morphed into other things. So Karen became an alcoholic. David became more uh, likeable and warm. They divorced. Adam and Rachel went through periods of difficulties as well. There was nothing else like it. You know, I suppose Friends had started in 94, but that was an out-and-out comedy. And this wasn't. This felt more down-to-earth and dealing with real things that people go through. And it had a quirkiness to it that I appreciated it and a nod of humour. And I just thought it, it did everything that it set out to do really well and never put a foot wrong. So do you think, Dawn, it's watchable in 2023 or you don't think it is? No, I do think it is. I do think there are bits, you know, like the stuff with Ramona, which you're much more aware of, you know, the mm. slightly problematic side. But mm. as you say, the the relationship issues they don't change over no. years. You know, everybody still has that same thing. That, you know, what it's like with a new baby, how your relationship changes, or moving in together, and how you've got to compromise. Yeah. You know, all those things are universal, and the characters themselves are universal. So yeah. I think it, it it does hold up in that. You know, there's a few things that date it, but uh, the general theme of it and the feel of it. I, is is timeless. Cold feet. Go and watch it if you want to. I'm not going to force you. You got your life to lead. Uh, next up, we're going from one of my old favourites to one. Never of say that to me. Well, no, <laughs> it doesn't apply to you. I'm talking to the wider listening public. We're going from one of my old favourites to one of Dawn's. It is my favourite TV show of all time, and it consists of 16 episodes. That must annoy you. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> We're talking, of course, about Dinner Ladies, which aired in November of 98 on BBC One. Am I right? Or is it BBC Two? BBC One. So this is Victoria Woods' foray into sitcom land. Apparently, uh, she originally planned it to be a bit like ER, which is why the the font of the the titles is is all in lowercase, because she wanted it to be like ER. She planned it to be this, like, fly-on-the-wall, high-tension series, but in a canteen of a factory in in manchester um and but as it turned out it became a very traditional uh audience in front of a live audience sitcom um and the first episode we are introduced to all the characters in the 
who work in the canteen. We have Bren is Victoria Wood is our central character. Her supervisor Tony, Stan the cleaner and an odd job man. We have the veteran ladies Dolly and Jean and the the youth in um Twinkle and uh, Anita. Twinkle is played by Maxine Peak. This was her launch and she is now one of Britain's best actresses and so it really was a starting place for her. Um, and the, this episode introduces the character played by Celia Imrie, uh, Philippa, who is the human resources. This is just a typical day in their uh, canteen. The bread man with his agoraphobia and he's brought the wrong bread. Uh, Jean's daughter is getting married. She's trying to organise a wedding. And so through all, she's asking questions about what should we have for the food? What entertainment we should, should we have? And um, in the middle, uh, Bren's mother, played by Julie Walters, comes in, introduced possibly one of the best comedy characters of all time, uh, Patricia, who um, often talks about the celebrities she knows. Petulia. Uh, Petunia. Go, what did I say? Patricia. What did I say Patricia? Go Petunia. to the back of the class and think about what you've done. <laughs> Petulia. Petunia Gardino. Yes. Don't come back on the podcast. You're both and... wrong. Sorry. Petulia Gordino. It's Petula, isn't it? <laughs> it's Petula, not Petunia. Yes, Petula Gordino. It's hard to even describe her. She is a mess and uh, a fantasist and uh, always uh, seems well-meaning. She comes in to ask uh, Bren to dispose of a mobile phone for a friend of hers. And that is uh, something which comes up again in the very last episode. So it's a, a planned uh, storyline that goes through. Uh, but she offers to get um uh, an entertainer for the wedding. Turns out it's actually a stripper. But the stripper contacts her grandfather, who is an accordionist. And the, the episode culminates with him uh, coming to the canteen to give them a demonstration just at the same time that Philippa has been trying to organise some kind of team bonding thing. She thinks they've organised uh, some Scottish country dancing themselves. She's over the moon, everybody bonds, and it turns out that Jean's daughter has run off and got married, eloped, and so all of it was for naught. Although you can say there is a plot in each episode, it's something very small, like the bread hasn't arrived, or... And like Cold Feet, it's dialogue... It's dialogue yes. that works. I should have said that about Confit as well. The dialogue is humane and 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 doesn't feel written. And this does feel written, but brilliantly written because the dialogue's yeah. so good. Would you mind if I pass the baton? You could use my phrase here if you want to use it. Did you feel it came out of the box fully formed? Yes, it absolutely comes out. Every character is in their entire form from the moment, the, the first words out of their mouth. Although, I have to say... Uh, yes, that, I was going to say this. <laughs> yeah, Tony would be fired if he, if he was around now because he keeps asking everybody to have sex with him. A gang uh, bang and a, a, gang and a, bang. a bunk up. Yep, and, and is it too much and that I, for you to walk around in your bra? I don't remember him doing that in the rest of it. So maybe it was like she was still trying to figure him out. I don't remember. She, he does a bit, but less less obviously he's less yeah. explicitly asking and he makes jokes about yeah. um glenda that 
she's uh, his his momolum and he's yeah. you know he's he's uh, sexual fantasies and whatever. Mm-hmm. There's references to it, but not as explicitly as it is here. But I mean, Stan, you know, even the characters like Jean and Dolly, you have two middle-aged approaching elderly women. They could be interchangeable or they could just be old women, you know, with, with no characters. But they have explicitly clear personalities. You know, Jean is body and um, outspoken, whereas Dolly is um, very snooty and obsessed with her weight, which we find out later why. Everything has has meaning to it. Everything has um, a depth. A lot of it we find out in, in the episode where their parents come. They have a bring your, bring your parent to work day. And we find out a lot of why each character is the way they are. But you don't need that. They just are. You know, Twinkle is a typical moody, sullen, uh, late teenager. Um, and and uh, Anita is nervy and <laughs> dim but not not she just doesn't pick up things and and you know she gets her words wrong here in key west we were out before it was in in this open and inclusive paradise you can be yourself make new friends and savor our live and let live vibe with lgbtq plus friendly accommodations our legendary nightlife and year-round activities and events It's always a good time to come as you are. Key West, close to perfect, far from normal. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every character is so well-rounded and so full from that first episode that you it could you were watching it and you don't feel this is introducing the only character who is introduced is Philippa the rest of them you feel like there could have been 10 episodes before that I I watched this episode a lot and I don't think I realized that it was the first one yes because it just it doesn't it's just an episode of dinner ladies Gloria Wood I've heard it spoken of by the rest of the cast she gave them the best stuff. And I always felt like I could never get a handle on Bren as a character. She was painted as really poor. Her favourite thing uh, to do for meals was take all the labels off her tin so she didn't know what she was having for dinner. And there's talk of her not having a phone. And so you, and her, her upbringing was weird. But I didn't really buy any of that because she was this lovely, warm person and Victoria Wood I think was being rather generous by giving the characters around her the best stuff but she felt the least well drawn in a way but she was the heart of Dinner Ladies she was the mum in the group Uh, but as a character on her own I I found her the least interesting but the writing from Victoria Wood here is you know the best it will be that the conversations that overlap each other, they're talking about a thing on Sky where a woman gets pregnant using a, a dead husband's sperm. Did you see that film on Sunday? On Sky? 
No, real telly. Doug Bogart. Oh, because on Sky there was this film about this woman whose husband died in this avalanche. And two years later, she finds his sperm in the freezer and gets pregnant with a turkey baster. <laughs> Good. Durgo. So she's been distraught for years because they hadn't had any children. Mm. She should have cleaned the freezer out a bit more often. <laughs> yeah, because all the lesbians have them now, don't they? Do they? Oh, yeah, we're in paper. Did you not read it? They get the sperm off the internet. <laughs> Bung it into turkey baster, like Dolly says. Nine months later, Bob's your uncle. Van is your. Thank you! <laughs> That's what Dirk Bogart was in, twink. So, Dolly, this sperm, was she just clearing out the freezer and there it was under the Arctic roll? <laughs> More or less, yes. Does Dirk Bogart come down some stairs on an aspect called Charlie going, ah? <laughs> no, that's Jim Dale. <laughs> <laughs> that's Carry On Nurse. Doctor in the House has got in with Posh Voice, Donald Sindon, that did that thing with that Welsh one from It Ain't Off Hot Mum. What do you mean, Hot Mum? Where they're all sweaty. Yeah. Who's our sweater? The soldiers in the jungle. They have little vests on. Little sweaty vests. Steady on, Brent. Can we have a calm, civilised atmosphere, please? Can we not pollute a food preparation area with talk of little sweaty vests? Tony, not only has Norman not given us our torpedoes, he's left us all these crusty bloomers. <laughs> Look, if we're not allowing sweaty vests into the conversation... <laughs> We're certainly not dwelling on Norman's crusty bloomers. <laughs> Which is just brilliant. And then the whole thing about Philippa. Wasn't he a whale? No, Flipper was a dolphin. But Skippy was the bush kangaroo. Just re I've seen yeah. it countless times. And those lines will always make me laugh. Proper belly laugh as well. I just I think it's really, really funny. It's just a, a talented cast. Victoria Wood always picked the same people. Uh, if you go back, Celia Imry, Duncan, they were all, they were Julie Walters, Anne Reed, they were all in her stuff, and she knew how to write for them and what the best things they were capable of doing, and just brought out this brilliant ensemble cast that she trusted implicitly. I saw a documentary years ago where it spoke about the way they filmed Dinner Ladies was they did two tapings, one in the morning and one in the evening or one the following day just to make sure they got everything right. Victoria Wood really slaved over every aspect of script so that if something didn't work, they would get changed and the cast were always kept on their toes because huge swathes of the script that they'd learnt would be changed if something didn't work in that first taping. She really put her heart and soul into it. And also because, unfortunately, the royal family, as we spoke about, had started two months earlier and made her studio set sitcom with the studio audience feel out of touch and, and dated. But I don't think it matters if it's this funny. They're bouncing off of each other. It's frenetic. The rhythms are all there. It's, it's brilliant. And you just want to spend more and more time with them. Is there a reason, Matt asked me about coffee, is there a reason why it's your favourite TV because you've watched a lot of TV. <laughs> so what, why does Dinner Ladies still... 
after all this time still hold your heart so fondly so fondly i think it is 100% the dialogue i could not tell you how many times i've watched it a lady if it's if it's on you know if i'm chuntering through oh, the yeah. channels and it's on uk gold or whichever one that's showing it at the moment i will watch it so i have watched some of the episodes hundreds of times yeah, probably yeah, me too. and and i still laugh it, it it just is so funny because it's so natural the dialogue and you know like in in this first episode the whole bit about who dirk bogart is and yeah you see the one that's you know goes down on the trolley going ah you know yeah. it's it's exactly the conversation it makes me feel like the conversations i have with my mum you know the, yeah. there's a one line which um not in this episode but we love where she's trying to remember a word and she's like it's a funny little word it goes dumpty dum trampoline no. yeah. yes no impotence you yeah. know it's the exactly the way people speak to each other and it's that that just makes me come back to it again and again and again and i never tire of it and i never tired of the the relationship between them i suppose it is like you know visiting with friends and like you say the parents one is brilliant where they have um, Eric Sykes and Dora Hurd. Dora Hurd and what's the other Dora, lady's Dora, name? Dora Bryan. Dora Bryan. Yeah. Yeah. Just brilliant. Uh, Victoria would just knowing exactly who these people are from the off. I agree with everything you said. Really, you basically said everything already. You know, you are eavesdropping on these characters every day. You believe that they have these same conversations every day. You know, the same introductions that Tony gives them and the same silly things that Dolly and Jean say to each other. You believe everything that, that is happening happened the day before or the week before the show began. And as you said, it's because of Victoria's brilliant writing and, and her sort of exacting nature that she has to make sure that every line and every word sort of resonates and makes sense from these characters mouths and even though it is you know old-fashioned as compared to like the royal family and other comedies of the time it didn't matter really i don't think because a degree of the ensemble and the writing and i just think it was warm and sort of comfort tv and i think Maybe that's why it's it's lasted so long uh, with you, Dawn. I will give you my favourite uh, line from the show is, are you not pregnant? No, not unless sperm can get through a sash window. That's And I, I use Victoria Wood's um, idea when I'm writing myself. I always think, is there a funnier word? You know, if you use a normal word, she could have just said, not unless sperm can get through a window. Still a joke. But she adds something that always makes it specific, a sash window. She gives it a, a personality. She makes sure something is very, very clear in the joke. She knows that some words are just funny. You know, there's a whole bit in this episode about crusty bloomers. That just, and, and granary torpedoes. For some reason, granary torpedoes is funny, and it is. Yeah. And she had an ear for that. You're right, the words are delicately and purposefully chosen and there's not an it's like a musical note there's nothing is there that doesn't need to be there it's all there for purpose i think it's brilliant dawn and i have been brilliantly strategic here because i took cold feet a show i love dawn took dinner ladies a show she loves and we all have great affection for and now we come to the 
donkey end of the podcast with two shows that we don't really feel any affection for, which Matt has got to sum up, beginning with uh, the Scottish drama, A Young Person's Guide to Becoming a Pop Star. Is that the full title? No, rock star. That hurt me straight away with bloody Dr. Hook and If You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman, which is the antithesis of a rock song. That's the point, though. Is it? Yes. Okay, well, I lost that point. This is um, all about Jez, an aspiring uh, rock star. He is the lead singer in a band called Jocks Hey. It comprises of his best friend, Psycho, who is a student, and um, he is the bass player in the band. The drummer, who is uh, Woolly McBoyne, former EastEnders actress Nicola Stapleton, playing Lee's guitarist Joe, who owns a van. And the the big sort of twist is that we think it's a man, Joe, but it's actually a woman. Jez has been unemployed for several years since he left school and has been signing on. And there is a um, extended sequence where he is at the benefits office and has to go and see the welfare officer, uh, who he learns has more interest in his music than he would first thought. She listened to his demo tape and really criticises it for being old-fashioned, old-school indie, it needs to be updated. The band then play at a student union gig, Uh, supporting a um, DJ who the sort of twist at the end of the first episode is that it is uh, Fiona, the welfare officer, is also a DJ and Jez wants to add her to the band and also wants to sleep with her. As Luke said, Jez is into sort of old-fashioned romantic music like Dr Hook, but his dad is really into old school rock, Led Zeppelin, we see him reading Kerrang. So it's the rebelling against your parents by listening to the music that they don't. And I think that's the gag there. And I actually have a strong memory of that. As soon as I watched that first scene, I was like, oh yeah, I do remember this. Remember watching this the first time around. Dawn, you said your husband also remembered this. Yes, he did. He remembered Nicholas Stapleton, funnily enough. Having watched it again, I didn't remember. I don't think I watched this, which really surprised me because I feel like I would have. It would have been appealed to me at that, especially at that age. Did you enjoy it? Not particularly. <laughs> it was a bit, I felt it was a bit of a slog. I ended up watching three episodes and I thought, oh, they're only half hour, but it felt like a lot longer than that. And there was some comedy in it that I liked in the first episode. I really laughed out loud. They have their rehearsal space and their their gear stored with this dodgy guy they owe him money for this uh, over a thousand pound and he's giving them options on how they can pay it back um and he says you can work it off like this other band did and he opens the door and it's bay city rollers cleaning uh, old washing machines i found that very funny because it was bay city rollers at least one time in each episode I did laugh out loud but I just didn't care enough about him you know it just that was like oh Jez I just don't care <laughs> I don't think you know as we were talking about dinner ladies how well drawn all the characters were in this I would say Joe is about the only one who's really well drawn the rest couldn't pin them down as personalities even Jez who is the lead other than the fact he wants to be a rock star, 
I, you know, I've watched the episodes and I couldn't tell you anything about them beyond that. It was written by Brian Elsley, who you later went on to do Skins, and this does feel like a, a bit of a proto-Skins in a way, doesn't it? Almost like... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The bare bones of what, what skins would become. Luke, you, you somehow hated this as well, yeah, I, I'm guessing. I really, 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 really struggled. Dawn and I are very different people. If she struggles, she goes, I'll watch three. <laughs> if I struggle, I go, I don't even want to get to the end. But I did it out of loyalty to both of you that I should at least give it the time of day. But it was just too loud, too in your face. I couldn't make head and the tail of it and, and what it was trying to say and what it was trying to be and who it was for. I don't think even me in 98 would have watched this and thought, I'm interested in this. And I was big into mu- music, as we know. I really took against this. This is up there with supply and demand for me, is why did somebody think this was a good idea? Why are the cast so terrible? Like Dawn, I couldn't tell you anything about where it was going, what it was trying to say, who these people were. I wanted it to calm down and let me be with them for a bit, but it, I just couldn't relax into it, and I, I was quite offended that it was so bad. Everybody felt like a cartoon character as well. Like I just couldn't get on board with it, absolutely couldn't stand it. I think I am quite neutral on this, really. Um, oh, God. I, I didn't have that much of an issue with it. I can sort of see where you're coming from, Luke. But I I like Skins as it went on. I think initially it, it needed to calm down and did, and you got some sort of issue-based stuff. Part of this, and I don't know if this was how it was pitched, was almost like train-spotting-esque. With the way it was filmed, with the pacing of the camera, the voiceover. The voiceover thing did irk me. You know, it was very expositional, introducing each member of the band. You know, it is an easy way to get a lot of plot quite quickly. I did like the way certain things were shot, especially in the the benefits office with, you know, the long corridor with all these painful things going on behind them. I think that was probably my favourite thing, but I did like, like as Dawn said, the Bay City Rollers. But it's typical sort of youth TV of the 90s, I would say. I think this is what this represents, and it is sort of a novelty of the time. Yeah, I didn't mind it, but it's not something that would sort of set the world on fire, and I don't think it's something that 
it's particularly remembered, but I, I do remember watching this, which again, probably I shouldn't have been allowed to at 14, 15. Finally then, um, we have a, a sketch show fronted by Simon Pegg, Amelia Bullmore, Kevin Eldon, Mark Heap. Julia Davis. Julia Davis. I'm going to say friggin' Brassai again. What the friggin' exit called? The big train. Oh, for God's sake. Big train. Uh, it is a traditional um, sketch show. Begins with Amelia Bullmore's character somewhere and asking for directions. Do you speak English? And Simon Pegg says, no, I don't. And there's a whole bit with that. Then there's other sketches that it goes uh, through and back to, like... Uh, a workforce that is really fed up with their boss, but he keeps fobbing them off with magic tricks and disappearing. There's a big animated staring competition that goes on far too long. Matt, what do you feel about sketch shows? And what do you think about this one? I mean, the 90s was a big time for sketch shows and I was a big sketch show fan. I loved Harry Enfield Chums. I loved The Fast Show. Uh, goodness gracious me was a re- you know debuted around the same time big train i don't think has, has lasted in the memories as much as the ones i've just mentioned but having rewatched it again very memorable sections in there especially the animated staring competition which immediately i was like oh yeah i remember this and i may even had a like a book of it or something. I'm not sure. I have a strange memory of like having, you know, one of those novelty Christmas present books and um, all about the history of the staring competition. The hit rate for me was more hits than misses in terms of the comedy and what made me laugh. I think the funniest joke was, was the shortest where it was Julia Davis putting anthrax on herself and then, dying basically like a, a one of those old like perfume adverts you used to get in the magazines where you sort of put a little bit on you but this was for anthrax i liked the workplace feud between jesus and the devil i thought that was very good i've got just as much of a sense of humor as the next man yeah, yeah, yeah okay but there are limits you push you push things just a little bit too far you upset people upset people, people you upset them. enjoy it apart from anything else it, there was danger of electrocution she had to change her clothing, and she's a shy woman, for goodness sake. It was very funny. I've sp- spoken to her since, and she was heading for a bit of a mini breakdown anyway. Just the pressure of the work. He considers himself, though, the uh, office joker. He says it's good for, good for morale. Mm. Well, that's just an example of what we're dealing with, really, isn't it? I mean, some of his um, pranks, as he calls them, uh, quite frankly, are dangerous, I think, unhygienic quite often. I mean, here's what you're doing. You're just blaming me for, for the fact that you run your tight ship. You've always got an answer, haven't you? No. And the answer is always <laughs> convalescent and pathetic. Is it? Is it I, is it, I mean, can I get on now? Because I've got lots of work no, to I've do. No, I've not finished yet. Mm. Oh, I'll write him a reference, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, just, you know, it's not working here for him, and uh, maybe it will somewhere else. But uh, obviously it's not going to be a glowing report, but, you know. Good luck to him, yeah. If he can find another position. Luke mentioned the uh, the boss who keeps doing magic tricks and disappearing when asked about bonuses. And the jockeys, I think, were a, um, a recurring gag. 
I didn't really understand it, if I'm honest. The jockeys, apart from them being like really eager, is that was that the joke? I'm not sure, but you could tell again that this was a, a sort of talented bunch. I think Kevin Eldon was quite known in the comedy scene at that point, but obviously Peg and Heap would go on later to do um, Space the next year, I believe. I think there is a reason why I don't remember it as fondly as your fast shows, your Harry Enfields, possibly because they didn't have the character-based stuff. They, you know, the, those shows did, like the set stock of characters that you go to in every episode and they'd be in a new situation. This was a lot more scattershot. I think it owed a lot more to Monty Python than the other shows that I've mentioned I think I would compare it as well to like to, to the goodies as well because they had a real surrealness that you know a lot of the other you know the the fast show had a level of surrealness but it was much more reality based whereas this had some really off the wall stuff. I watched three episodes, but I can't tell you which three episodes I watched. I watched them on YouTube, and I don't they didn't have numbers on them, so I just watched the three. The one that had to be I, I was laughing. But also, like, I don't know why I'm laughing. Was Kevin Eldon playing a like a Korean leader, and he's in he, on his deathbed, and Julie Davis is is sitting by his side, and just as he's just fading off, he starts singing Hot Legs, and she's like, "No, no, don't, don't, don't sit, try and sing," and he stops, and then he starts singing something by Billy Joel, can't remember, and then suddenly he flatlines and he's dead, and then he sits bolt up and starts singing Virginia Plains by Roxy Music with a band. And he sings the entire song. It wasn't just like two lines at the end of a you know punchline. They sang the whole song, so it was very weird. But it it did make me laugh. I have to say, and I did remember the staring. And I I spoke to my husband's friends when they they come around on a Sunday, and I mentioned it to them. They were older, and they all remembered it vividly, especially the uh, infamous wanking sketch. A lot of the successful sketches were the office-based one, and that was one where, like, the, there was going to be no more masturbating at work, and they were all like, "Oh no, I only got this job for the wanking." Um, so it was very, very odd, but it it, it did make me laugh. And it, as you say, the level of the performers, you can just see, you know, especially like Julia Davis is going to go on to epic things, and Kevin Eldon and and Mark Keep. Mark Heap is one of those people who just can do anything. You just put him in anything and he's, you go, oh, look, there's Mark Heap. He's just so good. And I, I think the group was very well matched in that there wasn't one where you felt, oh, it's a sketch with them. They're not so good. You know, they were all very equal. I'm surprised it hasn't remained in the memory as much. I, I can understand why not as much as the fast show, but, but even just a bit more than it did. Maybe it did because it didn't have a defined persona it was just sketches as you say there's no recurring characters but even then there wasn't like a theme there wasn't a, a universal style there was nothing that held it together and created an, an image in your mind of that sketch show other than who the performers are it's an interesting one isn't it i'm not a big sketch show person it's not the kind of comedy i like because i think by its very nature it's going to be hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss. And I always want to spend a long time with characters I like and get to know them. So 
these little vignettes that make up a skit show aren't my favourite thing. But I did like... When when they started the sketch and you thought it was going to be a small one, it would always be elongated. So the, the sketch with the guy sort of dressed like a Roman or like a Darth Vader type character and he had a problem with his, his mask that he oh, was yeah. wearing and it was really chafing him and he was saying, uh, don't move it. It's, it's every time I look up, it's really tight and every time you thought that was coming to an end, it would go on. And there is this thing in comedy where... If you stretch something out, it's something that you didn't find funny or you found funny initially will become funny again just because it goes on for so long. And, and like Matt, my favourite bit of the whole thing was the the chat between uh, Workplace Jesus and Workplace Devil because I thought that was the most down-to-earth it, it got. And then you remembered who these characters were and I thought that was a work of genius. I think I held it in higher regard because of I knew what these people were capable of. But it's probably their first TV gig. You can see the genesis of what they will all become. You can see they're all friends, that they're all working together, that they've got a unique uh, take on things. Considering I keep forgetting the title, I probably will forget we've watched this. And given the talent involved... Uh, Simon Pegg, Amelia Bournemouth, Julia Davis, Kevin Eldon. It should be at the forefront of my mind a bit more, but I just think in the in that first episode, it's still very rough around the edges. Sketches don't really work or don't really land the way they're hoping to, or at least didn't for me. And I was slightly disappointed by it. I want I wanted a bit more, given the team involved, the pedigree involved, not just on screen, but you know, working, directing, writing. It's all people we we know well and we know what they're capable of. So I was kind of disappointed, but not bored. So that is the TV time machine. That was what the TV landscape looked like in November 1998. There's nothing more to do now. We can all go on with our lives and join us in December 98 or January 98, depending on when we do this again. December 98. That's the end. No more. And uh, you can find this on the website thecustardtv.com. Well, well, well. Yes, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, well. and we do the. So that's it. And thank you very much for Dawn as well for joining us on this time machine. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tell your friends we exist. We're at thecustardtv.com. We're on Instagram, Luke, we're on Twitter. That's Luke. it. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to suggest doing the quiz, but I'm not sure how it's going to work because of my delay. Oh no, I was looking forward to that. I'd forgotten about it. I was looking forward to it. And it, it seems now like I was trying to rush us to the end. <laughs> oh, how silly of me. Maybe we double up on the next one. Yeah, maybe we could do two a quiz at the beginning and a quiz at the end. Oh, I think I might be ill that week, but it'd be lovely to do it anyway. <laughs> we normally do the quiz, but. Uh, Matt's internet is slower than normal so that we have been working with a delay so we're not going to do the quiz at the end and we'll do it next time when you join us in December of 1998. Thank you so much to Dawn for joining us on the time machine and thank you to Matt for organising this as always. Follow us for more. You can look at the podcast feed at thecustardtv.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts podcast spotify wherever you get your podcasts uh, and we will be back soon to to discuss christmas of 98 which i have fond memories of 
and we'll do that next time. Thank you, guys. Rate and review us wherever you find us. I think that it's programs like this that help people realize that they're not alone. Search The Custard TV on YouTube, iTunes, and Facebook. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.